and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch Dispatch Media. Come on by um, the site, kick the tires, uh, hang out, check out the comments, um, maybe even uh, sign up and become a member. That would be great. Okay, so it is Friday, July 2. Um, many of you will be listening to this on July 3. Um, hopefully not too many of you will be listening to this on July 4. Um, but it's July 4th weekend, and we'll um, talk about that towards the end. Might as well leave on a bit of a high note. Um, I was just talking to Ryan and Guy off air, as it were, about what I should talk about today. And I don't want to out one of them. Um, who broke down crying and just said, please take me out of this forsaken aisle in the North Atlantic. But now that's not important right now. Um, uh, one of them asked whether or not I thought the, the Trump organization indictments were uh, overblown or um, politically motivated. And uh, I, don't th- I don't think those two things are synonymous. And I figured since he asked about it, that, that'd be the, it's the thing that's most it's in my brain right now. So, um, I think they got, it looks like they got Weisselberg and the Trump organization dead to right on the allegations. Um, the, it just, I mean, it seems kind of obvious because there's actually a ledger at the, from the Trump organization confirming that they were doing this. Now, um, my friend, Andy McCarthy says that this is, overblown that this is not that big a deal and all of that kind of stuff. I'm not necessarily persuaded by that, but I just don't, I mean, I trust Andy and I, and I know he's being sincere and all that, but, um, it seems to me that if it's a class C felony or whatever, and you can get five to 10 years for it, um, if you can get five to 10 to 10 years for a crime and, it's actually no big deal, then maybe we should be changing the law and all that kind of stuff. So we can just put a pin in that for the time being, um, you know, opinions differ, um, on, on whether or not these crimes are a big deal or a small deal. I'm inclined to think they're a medium sized deal. I'm also inclined to think it's among the least shocking things, uh, in recent memory to find out that, uh, the Trump organization used shady accounting methods and less than ethical uh, um, accounting practices. I mean, this is this is the Trump organization, and um, I know I still you still see people on social media pretend that the that 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 Trump was a fantastic businessman and developer, and that he was a um, he had a fantastic corporate culture and um, all this kind of stuff. And that's all garbage. It's garbage and it's lies and it's marketing. And, um, anybody who's had any actual business dealings or knows anybody who's had business dealings with Trump world, who's read about the investigations into Trump world, looked at his bankruptcies, knows that he is a very shady businessman whose con was to, at, towards the end, um, uh, to convince foreigners that he was the richest guy in America so that they would lend him money and do deals with him because he couldn't raise, um, capital on domestic equity markets because his reputation was such garbage. 
Um, he was, I mean, I know people who, you know, were in the political business who could never get him to pay his, pay his bills. I know people whose parents were in, you know, contracting and whatnot, who got stiffed by him. He was a, he's a shady, crummy, nasty, dishonest businessman. So not shocked that the internal processes are, uh, less than above board. That said, I still don't, I don't, I really don't like this thing so far because, um, it does feel like, I mean, Andy's calls it selective prosecution. And I, I, I guess that's right. Um, it, it, it feels more like, you know, selected, I mean, I guess selective prosecution works. You could also just, I mean, it's, 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 but this is sort of a conundrum, right? If, if. I think it is absolutely true that they're looking at the Trump organization for political reasons. Were Trump not, had Trump not been president and had uh, he not so offended the sensibilities of liberals and Democrats and New Yorkers and yada, 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 this would not be happening. And that's bad. And I, I just don't know that that leads automatically to the conclusions that um, some of the critics of this want want it to lead to um you know first of all let's just take trump out of for a second i'm a big believer in the um school of uh sort of looking for trouble justice you know if you go wildly out of your way to invite trouble in your life um i have less sympathy for you when you find it than somebody who was just staying on the right path, staying on the clear moral path and tragedy or, or hard times befell them. Right. Um, somebody who's, uh, you know, deep in debt and has a gambling problem and keeps playing, uh, craps and he loses his house. I have a lot less sympathy for that guy than I do for the guy who, you know, um, who's the company he worked for through no fault of his own shuts down and he loses his pension or whatever and can't, or he can't pay his mortgage anymore. I mean, they're just different things. Um, skydivers who, uh, plummet to the earth and die. I'm, 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 I don't like it when that happens. I'm not in favor of that happening, but I have less sympathy. I le have less empathy. Um, than if some, some passenger just going to Akron for business and the plane has a malfunction and he's sucked out through the roof and plummets to his death because he was not assuming any of those risks the way the skydiver was. And so I guess my point is with the Trump stuff, Trump has winners. Ha I mean, I've talked about this a bunch of times. His whole life is a case study in um, sort of black swanism or, or winner's bias, right? The, the, the cartoon I always quote is about, this guy who says, uh, you know, you guys told me I was a fool. You guys told me to give up. You guys told me not to listen to my gut, but I stuck with my instincts and I followed my dreams and I won the lottery. And now look at all of you, how stupid you are, right? Somebody's got to win the lottery eventually. Um, it doesn't mean that mathematically it's smart to play the lottery all the time. Although I, I do a bit, you know, for fun. Um, but I also acknowledge it's stupid. Um, uh, the 
Trump behaved badly his entire life and it kept paying off for him. And, um, and so he has internalized the idea that he should just always listen to his instincts and whatnot. And that caused him to run for president and he won, you know, another example of like doing the wrong thing and, and, and not paying the logical consequences for it. And so the fact that he brought all of this attention upon himself, that he refused to, uh, uh, separate himself from his business the way basically every other president has always done. He didn't, you know, he lied about how he was going to do that. Um, he was making money off of his presidency while he was president. Um, yeah, I know he didn't take the salary, but I mean, the Trump hotel and all the other things that he did. Um, uh, he, you know, promised to release his tax returns and he didn't and all these kinds of things. He, when you, when you behave, when you behave, when you behave so far outside the norms, you invite other people to violate norms as well. And so while this kind of selective prosecution would bother me a lot more if it was going after Barack Obama or George W. Bush, um, or any sort of conventional president, um, when you behave this unconventionally, it just, I, I can't, I can't muster the kind of sympathy that some people think I'm supposed to for a guy who went looking for trouble on the scale that he did. That said, you're supposed to have norms about this for everybody else that should still apply. And I just haven't figured out whether or not this case on the merits warrants it. Certainly, if they found out that Weisselberg had murdered people, no one would care whether or not this was like the investigation was launched for political reasons. Um, but this isn't murder. Um, and I'm just sort of going to wait and see whether who has the more persuasive case about the nature of this stuff. And obviously the real goal here is to get Weiselberg to flip on something. And there, I think Andy McCarthy makes a very good point. They have access to like all the paperwork already, the tax returns, this, this ledger that incriminates Weiselberg. Um, and if they can't find the you know, sort of smoking gun or silver bullet or apt metaphor, um, to apply to, to charge Trump with something already. Odds are that they're going to get it from Weisselberg alone. Seems unlikely to me, but, um, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Um, oh, so this morning I was, um, you know, catching up on morning Joe and, um, it was just sort of funny, interesting. Claire McCaskill, uh, goes on this. Uh, so Scott Gottlieb, my friend and colleague at the American enterprise Institute, um, is on morning Joe promoting his new book, which I hear is great. I have not looked at it yet. Um, and we'll hopefully get him on the remnant sooner rather than later. But, um, so Scott's on there and, uh, out of the last year with all of the public health preening and, you know, stuff from a various officials, I think that, um, Scott Gottlieb has, has come out with his integrity and his reputation enhanced, which is no mean feat. Um, and I don't mean just enhanced among Fauci fans. I mean, also among Fauci opponents. Um, I know John Podoritz has some issues with, with Gottlieb, but, um, I'll let them do, I'll let my friends duke it out on their own. Um, anyway, so he's on morning Joe and they throw it to Claire McCaskill, former Senator. And, um, she goes on this stem winder kind of tirade of a question where she says, you know, you know, big pharma, these big 
you know, pharma companies, these big drug companies, they spend millions and millions of dollars to promote and market and advertise their products to get people to get a prescription to some new pill. And yet, the, you know, and then she, you know, she says, I used to talk about this in the Senate, you know, uh, but, you know, and it just goes on a, on a tear about it. And then she says, and why aren't they amidst the pandemic? Tell, you know, using some of that marketing and advertising expertise and power to encourage people to get vaccinated. Can you answer that, Scott, or something like that? <laughs> and Gottlieb says, hey, it's a good question. The reason for it is, is that all these vaccines are under um, an emergency authorization from the FDA and they're barred by law from advertising or promoting them in any way whatsoever. And it just like completely let the air out of the balloon. And I hadn't really thought of the question or the, or what the answer to it was, because I guess, because I hadn't thought of the question, but I thought it was, it's actually an interesting point, which I hadn't realized. And I guess it's the best argument for expediting full approval of this thing already, right? If, if, if there are those kinds of red tape things that are preventing maximal uh, public health campaigns to get people vaccinated, then prove it already. I mean, they've, they've certainly got enough data in at this point to prove its efficacy. Um, but I just liked that, you know, Claire McCaskill wanted this to be all because of, um, you know, these evil, greedy uh, drug companies refusing to do the right thing um, when in reality it was, whether it's uh, defensible or indefensible, different argument, but it was basically government red tape that was standing in the way of letting private sector do the right thing. And, um, and just the fact that Scott just didn't get baited by any of it. I mean, I think he sits on the Pfizer board, um, and just completely shot down the question I thought was funny. Um, what else is going on? Oh, uh, job numbers. They sound good. I don't know much more about them than that right now. They beat expectations. Um, it just sounds like they're for a bunch of different reasons. People aren't um, as eager to go back to work after the pandemic as they once were. And I think I do think that the unemployment benefits stuff is part of the answer, but it's clearly not the only answer. Um, so much of sort of like the cable news conversations want to boil things down to one explanation. And um, and obviously the explanation that's most convenient to one side or the other side. And I just, you know, it seems to me there's data that shows that um, a lot of baby boomers sort of near retirement are just sort of like, eh, really? One more year, two more years? Why don't we just, you know, get started on that now? And then there are other people who, after a year of the lockdown, maybe are not all that interested in heading back to some of the menial labor type things. Or there are some moms in particular who maybe um, grew to like being at home more with their kids and are delaying going back. You know, I mean, I just think there are a bunch of different reasons for it. The, the UI stuff is obviously one of them, but all in all, if you can do 800,000 plus jobs a month for a while, that's just great. So I hope it continues. Um, uh, gosh, what else? All right. So I guess I'll talk a little bit about Tucker. Um, actually hold off on Tucker. Um, let's talk about this commission stuff or the select committee stuff. Um, 
I, I'm just laying it out here now. I'm going to have zero patience for anybody who um, gets too up, too high up on their horse talking about how this is a political stunt. Um, um, there will be dumb political theatrics to it. Obviously, we are talking about politicians after all. Um, the But the simple fact is, and I just think this is an objective fact, um, observable, documentable, um, was that Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, they um, did not want a serious commission looking into all of this because it would be more to their benefit to have Nancy Pelosi create something that they could then say was unserious. And I think it was cynical. I think it was short-sighted. Um, I think it was um, irresponsible and, and a whole bunch of other adjectives that are broadly synonymous with bad and stupid. Um, and, um, and Kevin McCarthy has now gotten, I, I don't know where this stands now and I'm sure it'll change now that, that Liz Cheney has called his bluff. But, uh, I saw somewhere yesterday while I was running around that, that McCarthy had threatened to, uh, take people, any, any Republican who signed on the select committee to take them off their normal committee assignments, which is, you know, um, a pretty serious punishment, uh, in Congress that makes it basically neuters you. And, um, which I think is outrageous in and of itself, but in the specifically in the context of like Paul Gosar hanging out with um, these uh, these alt right neo Nazi groiper racist guys, and him not pulling him off his committee assignments, you know, is it's just grotesque, you know. And uh, I got into this a little bit yesterday um, in my conversation with Mo Alethi. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't know how I sounded on it, but like, I don't in fact like this thing that says I have to, you have to comment on everybody everywhere and everything they say, or I'm going to assume you agree with them. I don't buy that. Um, but there are points at which that kind of logic actually does apply. And, you know, for sitting politicians in particular, um, Condemning certain things is important. It sets the boundaries for what defines membership within the group versus membership outside or, or non-membership outside the group. And, you know, that doesn't mean you have to like, you know, I can't tell you how many Republican politicians I know who, who, um, dislike Trump, but they really, really resent the media asking them, you know, this is when Trump was president, asking them every single time Trump tweeted something, do you condemn this or do you condemn that? Right. That I think was sort of ridiculous. You know, when Ben Sass goes out and he says, I'm not going to comment on all of his tweets, um, but I think, you know, these kinds of statements are bad. People know where I stand on Donald Trump. And then he doesn't take the bait every time Trump did something stupid is a perfectly defensible, you know, way to go. Otherwise, you are basically letting, you know, the media and, and Donald Trump dictate your entire life. And I just think that's dumb. But um, politics is about the signals that you send. And um, 
if you're sending the signal, basically what Kevin McCarthy is doing now, what the GOP is doing is sending the signal that anybody who has a problem with this um, riot at the Capitol that was aimed to disrupt the constitutional function and with the ultimate goal <clears throat> of stealing the election as part of a, uh, a, a long planned and coordinated effort by, by the, um, at the time, lame duck president Trump, um, that if you express any further problems with that, or if you want to find out more, then you're not a good Republican. I mean, it's just as simple as that. And at the same time, if you hang out with, um, the, these, you know, coprophagic jackwads, um, like Nick Fuentes and all these kind of guys, well, you know, we're a diverse caucus. We have different points of view, blah, 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 blah. And that's just a really crappy way to, to define your party. It just is. And it's dumb. Um, and it's long-term, it's really dumb. Um, and it offends me. And speaking of dumb, uh, Tucker Carlson's not dumb. And I will tell you, I've never had an unpleasant personal conversation with Tucker Carlson. He's, I consider him a friend, or I considered him a friend. I don't think he's a particularly big fan of mine now. I do not like how he runs his show. I don't like how he handles um, important questions in public. Um, but, you know, it's just difficult because there are, you know, in, in my personal life, I always liked Tucker. Um, uh, he's a decent dad and family guy and all that kind of stuff. But I think what he's doing is just awful. And, um, you know, the case in point is this, this NSA thing. Um, I got all sorts of grief from some, from some well-intentioned people who just didn't understand what I was talking about. And then from a lot of really awful, idiot, dumb, ridiculous people. Um, the other night. So Tucker says that his emails and text messages were, were intercepted by the NSA and read back to him by a whistleblower who was telling him that, uh, the NSA planned to, to destroy Tucker and get his show off the air by selectively leaking. It's, um, the product of its espionage targeting Tucker. And they repeated the same thing. The, the second night with no additional proof. But anyway, the first night he said that I just tweeted, uh, spoiler alert. The NSA is not, um, spying on Tucker. Now I can totally understand if you didn't know what Tucker was saying or the specifics of his claim, why some people would say, Oh, you idiot. The NSA spies on everybody. Um, it's collecting data wholesale, blah, 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 blah. I understand that argument. There's some merit to that argument. It is wildly overblown. Um, it doesn't really understand how, you know, that for the NSA, first of all, the NSA has to has suspicion that you are talking to somebody abroad for it to access the domestic stuff. It needs all sorts of warrants. And yada, yada. I don't want to get into all that because I don't find it interesting. And I, and I actually think it's a distraction. And that's the point of that response from the people who know better is there it's a Mott and Bailey thing, right? I was saying, you know, snarkily that what Trupper, that what Tucker is saying will turn out not to be true. And their response was to change the argument from the specific allegations that Tucker was making to broad 
statements about the role of the NSA in espionage generally, which is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the actual story that Tucker is telling about a whistleblower at the NSA, blah, 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 trying to uh, destroy Tucker and take down his show. I just don't believe it. I don't know if Tucker believes it. I honestly don't know. Um, I don't know if he believed that the FBI, in fact, orchestrated the January 6th riot, um, which he claimed, I don't know, a week ago. Um, I don't know if he what his actual opinions were about that whole thing about um, the post office uh, stealing his scripts. Um, uh, but I would just tell you as a matter of sort of, you know, objective observation, I think, oh, let's put it this way. I think Occam's razor has a lot, lot better explanations than the NSA is looking to take Tucker down. And one of them might be, if you didn't know, I mean, this, this is like what pretty much anybody I know, uh, I shouldn't say anybody I know, but a lot of people who are interested in or amused or bemused or mystified by Tucker's behavior, um, the, the most popular theory about what's going on here is some version of the following. Um, well, let's put it this way. My theory, my, my chief theory, I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure I'm right, but I, I would bet a bit is this, um, Ben Smith, like 10 days ago, New York times media reporter, columnist, uh, had a piece where he revealed that Tucker is a major source for, um, mainstream media journalists for dish on Trump and things in Trump world. And without betraying any confidences of my own, I think the story was somewhere between 98 and 99.5% entirely accurate. Um, and, uh, and it pissed off Sean Hannity. It pissed off Mark Levin. Um, it, pissed off other people in that universe. And, and my hunch is that Tucker knows this. Tucker knows that there is that, that there are people in that world that have receipts on Tucker. Um, and he's trying to get out ahead of this so that when some bad story drops about him, the story isn't, um, about what the, what the thing is, it's about how, aha, see, this proves the NSA was spying on me. These leaks come from the NSA, yada, yada, yada. Or, um, it's just an effort to just change, change the subject from this very bad for him piece in the New York times. And it's not a preemptive thing, but I don't, I just simply don't believe, you know, the, and then the third possibility is, is that Ducker has been uh, in contact with people in Glenn Greenwald world and Snowden world and Julian Assange world. And he has been playing footsie in that camp, which would, you know, does not shock anybody because it's a, it's basically uh, true just given his, his show in the guests that he has on and that something was scooped up and all of that, which is a very different thing. 
you know, if if his stuff, if if some text message of his, I still don't believe that the whistleblower at the NSA called him. I just don't believe that. Um, but I mean, someone may have called him. I just don't believe it was a whistleblower at the NSA. Um, and uh, um, but that's a very different allegation, right? If 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 he's dealing with people who are essentially known enemies of the United States. I, mean, I, I don't mean Greenwald. I mean, I'm not a fan, but I'm not saying that about him, but like people like Snowden, right. Who's a traitor and a spy who revealed, you know, um, I mean, spy might be the wrong word, but traitor isn't in my book, um, who revealed all sorts of things and then ran for cover to live in, in Russia. Um, uh, if he's dealing with those people and it's, in, it's international, you know, uh, communications and the NSA picked up some of that, uh, that's different than, you know, they're trying to take down Tucker's show. You know, it's just a different thing. Anyway, long story short, I think this is all so silly. I'm kind of feel dirty and embarrassed talking about it as much as I have. Um, and the fact that Kevin McCarthy has assigned Devin Nunes to look into these very serious allegations um, while at the same time he's stonewalling uh, having anything to do to look into Trump's role in January 6th, um, which I do think there's a lot more to find out there. There are a lot of those sketchy people in sort of the, 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 the swampier parts of Bannon world, which are pretty swampy, you know, who helped organize that thing, who coordinated that stuff with these various groups, the Roger Stone world. Um, that stuff should be brought into the light. And I mean, some of it will probably come out in court case stuff, but I see no reason why we shouldn't try to, you know, disinfect all of that stuff and cauterize all of that stuff um, with public hearings. But that McCarthy thinks that this stuff generated by Tucker and Tucker alone, keep in mind, Fox News, no one on the news side has reported on these allegations at all. You know, I mean, even Fox, I don't think Fox media, you know, the Fox news website media guys who report breathlessly every ruthless podcast as if it were, you know, a major announcement from the fed, um, haven't touched on this story that Tucker Carlson claims that the Biden administration was spying on him to take down the uh, show. Um, and a journalist who's his political opposition. I mean, that's a huge story, huge story. And it's being thrown out there on Fox air. And yeah, I'm a Fox news contributor and Bubkis from the news side covering it. Now, if you believe Tucker is, is you know, what does that, including like things like Fox and friends, which is not in the news division, it's in the, uh, on the opinion side of things, which a lot of people don't know. Um, you know, What's your explanation for it? My explanation for it is that, uh, that people within Tucker's own organization understand that this is a nonsense thing or that at the very least Tucker's playing games and, um, you know, maybe he's got some other shoe to drop later that he can then say, aha, CIO is right, which doesn't actually prove it, but it does muddy the waters a bunch or something like that. But regardless, no one wants to touch it at Fox, right? No, so, I mean, in effect, even... The guys at Fox don't buy this story, but Kevin McCarthy does enough to look into these very serious allegations while at the same time threatening to strip people from their committees if they want to look into um, January 6th. It's just 
tacky, embarrassing bull****. Um, oh, speaking of BS, and I'm sorry for the cursing. Um, we can bleep that. Um, um, what was I going to say? Oh, I saw popping up on Twitter with the death of Don Rumsfeld. All this stuff, you know, this that maybe you kids out there don't remember, but there was this whole insane thing about the defense, the Bush Defense Department and its foreign policy advisors were not just a hotbed of neocons, dum dum dum, but a hotbed of Straussian neocons, dum dum dum, and. We are not, in my fairly uncaffeinated state, going to get deep into the weeds on what is Straussianism. But um, suffice it to stay here, this was profoundly stupid. Profoundly stupid. Um, you know, like a couple people, maybe Wolfowitz, um, one of them, maybe, I, I can't even remember who, well, Bill Crystal wasn't in the administration. There were a couple people who like maybe took a class from Leo Strauss at the University of Chicago in the 60s. Um, there are a couple people who were friends with people who were friends of Straussian. I mean, it was just like it was a really weak, weak six degrees of separation thing. And like Paul Wolfowitz, you know, who's a friend of mine and a colleague also at AI. Um, I remember I think it was Tim Robbins did a play where at one point the curtain rises and all of these neocons are doing Nazi salutes, chanting hail Strauss or something like that. I mean, it got so paranoid, bizarre, weird, all about a political philosopher who, who, if he if he wrote about foreign policy outside of like that of Sparta and Athens, I, I I'm unaware of it. Um, he didn't, you know, talk about, Republicans and Democrats or, or, you know, and he was, anyway, <laughs> the thing you, I guess the thing you should know about Straussianism is that it's, Zoe, come on, go, lie down. Zoe doesn't understand why I'm just like talking why aimlessly into the air for an hour. Um, well, I, I don't want to get into Straussianism, you know, uh, Straussianism is a, is a very complicated you know, political philosophy orientation. Most famous Straussian was Alan Bloom, arguably other than, I mean, he's more, I think Alan Bloom was probably more famous than, than Strauss himself in a certain way. Um, and as a, as a philosophical enterprise, um, Straussianism, you know, part of it was simply that for a lot of, Zoe, stop it. Come on, go. Um, uh, for a lot of, uh, history, um, philosophers, how am I going to put this? Philosophers couldn't speak in plain language. They had to write esoterically, um, because, you know, you could get in a lot of trouble with the church or with the secular authorities for speaking honestly about what you thought about the nature of man and the nature of God or the existence of God and all of these kinds of things. And, um, and, and so some of the Straussians have these deep, deep, deep engagements with the text where the sort of joke among sort of Straussian types is not the joke, but it's the, it's the, the mantra is about significant silences. 
you know, what can you learn from the text by what the, what the author is not saying? And, um, Harry Jaffa was a student of Strauss and Harvey Mansfield and their West Coast Straussian and East Coast Straussians and yada, yada, yada. And, and I don't want to get deeper into the weeds, but natural right and all these various things. But suffice it to say, it had no bearing on the Iraq war whatsoever. And it got almost anti-Semitic in its weird sort of Paul Wolfowitz and the neocons and the Straussians. And, and it was just, um, was really incredibly dumb. And I kind of thought that was all dead, but then I saw some blue check mark types, you know, uh, reviving it. And it does put me in mind that maybe we should do, um, and all Leo Strauss episode of the remnant sometime and really get into it. Um, oh, but one, one point that I think is sort of worth mentioning in all of this critical race theory, um, um, argy bargy, uh, some of these attempts, look, I, I, I differ with David French. I think that, uh, if you can figure out an intelligent way, uh, it's not so much teaching about critical race theory. It's, it's, it's indoctrinating in critical race theory that I have a problem with. I, I, you know, at, as long as it's age appropriate, I don't think any of this stuff is belongs in grade school, but you know, Teaching people what Marxism is, teaching people what Nazism is, what communism is, what racism is. These are all legitimate things to teach kids in high school when, you know, in, at the appropriate age level and with the appropriate nuance and sophistication. And I have no problem with people teaching critical race theory in that kind of context. Um, uh, but teaching the sort of but indoctrinating the conclusions of critical race theorists that all white people are racist and yada, yada is a very, very bad thing. And I don't blame parents after years of, of, you know, of racialism stuff, wokeism stuff being taught to their kids saying, okay, this far, no farther. And, and saying enough, that doesn't bother me at all. It doesn't bother me at all. If state legislatures want to put some curbs on this, where I agree with David is that they're all doing it very, very, very badly. And I like the guys at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, but that checklist of you may, your kids may be exposed to critical race theory if, uh, you know, words like, you know, uh, social justice are used or whatever. I think that's really ham-fisted and it's going to backfire. And the reason I bring this up is that, so in college, there's this famous book. I, I got to stop using the word famous when I'm talking about well-known among a very small group of nerds, but, uh, there's this book, um, history of political thought by, um, by, by Leo Strauss and Seth Cropsey. And it's sort of like the, the Straussianism, uh, reader in some ways. It's got all these famous Straussian political philosophers in it, um, and political theorists in it. And, and the, but the chapters are just on Nietzsche, Plato, Aristotle, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's sort of like an introduction to, to the history of political thought, which is what the book is. But it's written from the leading, written by a lot of the leading Straussian um, political philosophers. You know, Herbert Storing, Werner Danhauser, um, Alan Bloom, Cropsey, Strauss. Um, you can go down, Harvey Mansfield, you can go down the list. Anyway. Um, 
I had it. I, you know, it came to my house in high school somehow. I don't know. We got a lot of free books when I was a kid. Um, this was my dad's job. And I was interested in philosophy and I read it without knowing word one about like the, the controversies over Leo Strauss. I didn't know anything about any of that stuff. And then I get to college. I went to Goucher College, as listeners know. And um, the year before I got there, or not the year before I got there, the year, my freshman year, there was a huge knockdown, drag out, tenure fight because uh, this guy, uh, James Stoner, who I believe is at um, Tulane, maybe? Um, he's a great, brilliant guy. Um, he didn't get tenure. And the way I remember this, and I don't want to do a disservice to anybody, the way I remember it was he didn't get tenure because he had not disclosed until very late in the process after being there for years that he was in fact a Straussian and non like liberal political scientists loathe and and philosophers loathe and despise Strauss for all sorts of complicated reasons, you know, and and get, get into all sorts of arguments about the nature of truth and yada, yada, yada. And it's sort of like, you know, my talk about, uh, why Jews, um, you know, went into usury in part because they were told that's the only jobs you can have. And then they were condemned for being in usury. One of the reasons why, uh, Straussians became so secretive is because they were treated so badly that they had to sort of, you know, uh, organize and behave as like in secrecy a little bit because they knew it would hurt their careers if they were out in the open. And so it's one of these sort of self-fulfilling things. Anyway. Um, Jim Stoner was a hugely popular professor. I never had him as a professor. And a um, bunch of people were furious that he was denied tenure because he was so popular with students and he was such a great guy and yada, yada, yada. And people were saying and it was all because, you know, they don't like Straussians. So that was like the first time I heard about Straussianism. And then my second big exposure to it was I was in a philosophy class and I wrote a paper I want to say it's either about Heidegger or Nietzsche or something, but uh, it doesn't really matter. And I quoted the, a chapter from the Strauss and Cropsey book um, about something about Nietzsche, I guess. Again, why does this matter? Um, and I footnoted it. And I cited my source. And I thought I was just citing a sort of general reference kind of volume kind of thing. I mean, it was like University of Chicago Press and blah, 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 blah. And my philosophy professor in red pen wrote in giant, like 72, 114 point font uh, along the entire left-hand margin of the entire page of my paper, Strauss sucks with a line and an arrow pointing to that footnote. And now I'm off to the races, right? Forbidden knowledge, esoteric, uh, secret you know, cabals, yada, yada, yada. And I became really, really interested in Straussianism. And, and then of course I go to AEI, which was one of the, you know, after college, which was full of a lot of the contributors to that volume and, you know, full of like East coast Straussians, Walter Burns and, 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 um, Oh, what's his name? Anyway, I don't want to get into all that. Uh, but it was, but, but the only reason I'm bringing this up is that, um, if you, if you go down the path of treating some idea as if it is truly like 
um, forbidden esoteric knowledge that is denied to you because it is too dangerous for you to grasp, that is in effect marketing critical race theory. It is, uh, you are not, you're, you're not killing it. You're, you're, you're turning it into something really cool and trendy. And, and I'm not sure that the trade-off on that front is worth it either. It's certainly, you know, look, I mean, if you can prevent 99% of high school students from hearing about critical race theory while making it really, really popular with some avant-garde among 1%, it's a mathematical thing. Maybe that makes sense. But all I'm saying is that prepare yourself for the unintended consequence that you are actually going to make this idea seem cooler and more popular among smart, rebellious kids than it otherwise would if you actually taught it as if it had to be on, you know, as if you had to answer multiple choice questions explaining what it is. Um, that makes it boring and conventional. And sometimes I think, you know, uh, cultural censors and boulderizers don't always understand that they are um, making the problems they're trying to fix worse. Let's talk about the 4th of July. Uh, I wanted to talk about this bizarre thing, but I haven't read it all yet, so I want to hold off on it. Um, but Ezra Klein did an interview, did a podcast with this guy who basically argues we were better off and happy, happier when we lived in, um, you know, uh, in our, in our pre-modern tribal incarnations. And this guy apparently is a sociologist who spent a long time with one of the last subsistence hunter gatherer tribes in, in the world. And, um, there's all this stuff in it. Again, I haven't, I haven't gone through the whole thing yet, but, and he's got a new book out and I, I might want to have him on. Um, basically arguing this is not a new argument i mean uh, i think ezra miscasts it as as a newer argument than it is um but there's this idea that we were just sort of happier before the agricultural revolution when we were hunter gatherers there's some of this in jared diamond there's some of this in all of romanticism i mean this is this is rousseau to a t right man is born free yet everywhere is in chains and um um, it, it, it is, uh, it is, a, a, not a central, but it's an important sort of strain in a lot of Marxist, uh, Karl Marx's stuff. Um, and this whole idea of the noble savage, you know, which again, doesn't, I don't think noble savage, the tra noble savage, the term doesn't come from Rousseau, but the idea of noble savage does, um, uh, is all over the place in our culture. And, um, you know, and in some ways it's, 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 a it's a slight, only slight perversion of a, of a sort of a biblical morality tale, right? Adam and Eve lived in harmony in Eden. They were happy. And then they were given the forbidden knowledge of, you know, uh, uh, by the snake and, and, and they have to cover themselves in shame and we're off to the races. And there's a big chunk of this in, in Al Gore's, uh, Earth in the Balance book. I mean, again, there's a lot of this in environmentalism generally that we took the wrong turn with modernity. And um, I just want to be very clear. I think it's hot garbage. Um, I mean, it's a nice story when told nicely, but if you, you know, you read Steven Pinker, uh, if you 
um, read anything about what life was actually like. I mean, so the, the claim is that, you know, people, people back then had a more diverse diet, which is true. Um, certainly I, I shouldn't say that they had a more diverse diet than the average human being after the agricultural revolution for quite a while. Right. The thing about the agricultural revolution is that in many ways it made the average person's life worse, both in terms of what they ate and how hard they had to work for a very long time. But it also allowed for more people to live. And um, so I, if you want to say that savages were better off, a, a, you know, 500 years before the agricultural revolution than they were 500 years after the agricultural revolution, I'm with you. But if you want to tell me that we today would be better off if the agricultural revolution never happened, see ya. I think you're nuts. And, um, I mean, not nuts. You're just wrong. You're deluded. Um, and what I find sort of fascinating about some of this, maybe I'll, I'll do the G file on this. I don't know. Um, uh, one of the things I kind of find fascinating about this is that if you describe the kind of hunter gatherer lifestyle that we are now being told, or we're now being told again, is so admirable and so preferable. And, you know, they only had to work 15 hours a week. Wahoo. Um, uh, they didn't get to watch a lot of Netflix or go skiing, I should point out. But anyway, look, I mean, so they, they, they didn't have to work that hard to collect fruits and berries and grubs and, 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 and unseasoned, you know, rodents that they would roast on the fire. Um, maybe they got to pick over some great bones after the, the, the lions and the bears were done with the carcass. I mean, who knows? I mean, a very diverse diet. I'm sure it was wonderful. Um, uh, but if you just, if you described even in rough terms, that kind of lifestyle that they lived back then about somebody today in the Western world, you would call that not just poverty, extreme poverty, hyper poverty. And, um, and I just think it's kind of funny that we spend so much time talking about how we have to fix poverty and, um, lift people out of poverty. And yet we're also getting the signal that these people who literally don't have a pot to piss in um and you know live purely a, on a subsistence level um are happier and more prosperous and better off than than uh than even middle class or upper middle class or rich people are today you know there's a con there's some contradiction in all of that um but that brings me to the fourth of july which is what i, I wanted to talk about um and it's just a good sort of segue because in my book, you know, Suicide of West, you know, I, I make this argument that um, liberal democratic capitalism, the Lockean revolution, whatever labels you want to put on this thing that emerges essentially 300 years ago in England and, yes, maybe Holland, um, is this miracle, right? For the first time in all of human history, the average human being starts making more than $3 a day. Um, Everywhere in the world for hundreds of thousands of years, the average human being made the equivalent of about $3 a day. Anywhere where that, that average started to go up sustainably for a while, it would, it would regress back to the mean because the powers that be um, preferred 
to keep innovation at bay, to keep freedom at bay, to keep prosperity at bay, or they didn't know how to handle it because it threatened their, um, their hold on power, or sometimes just some, just some awful bowel-stewing disease came in and destroyed the whole community. I mean, there are all sorts of different reasons for it. Or other nations seeing the prosperity that was emerging in some city-state said, we want that, and they invaded and, uh, and crushed its ability to continue to produce wealth. Whatever the reason, it was almost, un- it was almost every- everywhere in the world, the average human being lived in poverty. There were rich people, of course, but they weren't the average people. The average people, the median person, lived in, in crushing poverty. And um, that changed once and only once. And it changed because of a bunch of different ideas and practices and habits that converged and, sort of, and formed basically a middle-class morality um, in England, deeply infused with all sorts of religious principles about delayed gratification and hard work and trust and thrift and whatnot. And you can, you can pick as many of the different ingredients for where we get the miracle from as you want. I got no problem with it. Just don't tell me it was all about slavery because it wasn't. Um, and, um, boom, we're off to the races. People are becoming freer. They're living longer. They're, they're, um, they're learning to read. They're, um, um, able to fulfill their potential in ways that they never were before. It is this glorious thing and it's still going on now. And, um, and my argument is, is that we should be grateful for it. Okay. Now I've said all this before and I'm doing a bad job of saying it now. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop with that point. But the other point, which I, if you've heard me give book talks, you know that I, I usually end on this. Um, the, that basic approach that comes out of that period, when I say that basic approach, I'm talking about this idea that, you know, of limited government, of, of, of free trade, free commerce, um, democracy, free speech, freedom of conscience, um, the right to property, the right to uh, free assembly. Um, the idea that our rights come from God, not from government, that we're citizens, not subjects, that the fruits of our labors belong to us. That whole rich, you know, as like Tommy Lee Jones and Firebird says, you know, listen, kid, when I was your age, I was just like you with my head and my heart wired together for some full tilt boogie for freedom and justice, that kind of thing, all that good stuff. That is, um, why we got this miracle. This is why we're. We, it's where the idea of, not, I don't want to say the idea of freedom because the idea of freedom, the idea of freedom is old and you can trace it to all sorts of different things. But the, what the Marxists like to call praxis, where you put ideas into operation on the ground, it all comes from there, right? It's all um, in, a, in a sustainable and scalable way. And we should be grateful for all of it. But more importantly, I would argue I do argue, I do believe passionately, you can't improve upon it. Now, this doesn't mean that we, you know, there's, there's a God-given proper tax rate, or, and this doesn't mean you can't have a social welfare state that's more generous or less generous. This doesn't mean that you can't have different rules for voting. You know, these things, you know, 
how these ideas are are lived out in real world experience on the ground are going to vary from place to place to place. Um, and this is, you know, the difference between liberalism and practice and liberalism and theory that I talk about all the time. And, uh, but we have a certain understanding of what democratic nations look like, what, what liberal cultures look like, what liberal societies look like. And I'm not talking about progressive. I'm talking about sort of, you know, free societies. And my basic view is that these cannot be um, improved upon. Um, we can have arguments of politics. You know, there was, that doesn't, you know, like I think Francis Fukuyama was right that, you know, if, you know, if you're talking about history as the unfolding progression of the idea of how government and self-government works, then we did reach the end of history. That doesn't mean at the, you know, at the end of the history, at the end of history, history can restart because if people refuse to acknowledge it, which is where we are right now. And this is sort of my argument about, um, you know, the nationalists and the socialists, they're all, um, they all think that they can improve upon um, the liberal order uh, with these various ideas that are all old and reactionary, that have all been tried, that um, those arguments have been fought and lost and fought and lost time and time again. And they think in part, because, I mean, it depends on who you're talking about, but a lot of them, simply because they weren't part of those arguments, they think, and they don't know this history, they think these are new and fresh ideas, right? Oh, industrial policy is like, you know, so cutting edge, you know, even though like industrial policy is one of the oldest ideas since the rise of industry. Um, and so since it's the 4th of July, I want to talk about the second best commentary on the 4th of July or the Declaration of Independence um, after, maybe the third best. The best thing ever written about the Declaration was the Gettysburg Address, you know, um, by Abraham Lincoln, you know, in case you were thinking about the Gettysburg Address by Seb Gorka or something. Um, and, uh, and then you can make an argument for Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. That was certainly the vastly more important you know, document about the declaration, but it wasn't primarily about the declaration. It used and invoked the declaration for noble purpose. Um, and historically is, was massively significant because it was basically, you know, at least a partial fulfillment of what Abraham Lincoln had done almost exactly a century earlier. Um, but often unfairly left out is Calvin Coolidge's speech on the 150th anniversary of the declaration of independence. And so I called it up here to actually read from it. And this is my favorite paragraph in the whole thing. About the Declaration, there is a finality that is exceedingly restful. It is often asserted that the world has made a great deal of progress since 1776, that we have had new thoughts and new experiences which have given us a great advance over the people of that day, and that we may therefore very well discard their conclusions for something more modern. But that reasoning 
cannot be applied to this great charter. If all men are created equal, that is final. If they are endowed with inalienable rights, that is final. If governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, that is final. No advance, no progress can be made beyond these propositions. If anyone wishes to deny their truth or their soundness, the only direction in which he can proceed historically is not forward, but backward towards the time when there was no equality, no rights of the individual, no rule of the people. Those who wish to proceed in that direction cannot lay claim to progress. They are reactionary. Their ideas are not modern, but more ancient than those of the revolutionary fathers. So what he's saying there is really profound and really important and really forgotten. That, like, there are lots of propositions that simply are final. Two plus two equals four. You can stare at the math for the rest of your life. It's still going to be two plus two equals four. Move on. If you believe that governments derive their powers from the consent of the governed, that's final. It's not going to change a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now. My friend Vin Canada was getting all worked up about um, political scientists accusing historians of historicism, and I understand where he's coming from, and it's a fun, interesting argument for a very select group of people. <laughs> but where the people he derides have it right is that these ideas are timeless. These ideas are permanent fixtures of the human landscape. And if you think that you know, the latest socialist idea or the latest nationalist idea is some radical step forward in human progress, some advancement of this sort of Hegelian dialectic towards a more, perf you know, a more perfect utopian end of history than what we've stumbled into with the miracle, you're wrong. Socialism, fascism, communism, nationalism, these are all old ideas. These are even older emotional states they are all in their in their most modern and sophisticated form they're all reactionary because they are just different expressions of the the tribalist ethos that says the the group is more important than the individual that there is strength in numbers which is like literally where the term fascism comes from um that the cult of unity is is something that we should all worship at and um, that doesn't mean all of their arguments are wrong or all their policy proposals don't have merit. But if you take it beyond the sort of the prudential, narrow application of a specific policy idea and you start moving into the realm of metaphysics and philosophy or even religion, where you start saying that, that you know, a few priests who have a better conception of the highest good have the right to impose it on everybody else. It doesn't become less reactionary if you, if instead of calling them priests, you call them social workers or bureaucrats or, or, or thought leaders or Ted talk recipients or whatever. It's still the same idea. 
And the most radical thing, I've been saying this for so long, the most radical thing that's happened in the last, you know, 10,000 years is this idea. This idea, which, yes, owes massive things to Jesus and to Judaism and to all sorts of other stuff. But this idea that the individual is sovereign, that we are captains of ourselves, that, um, that government works for us, we don't work for it. And these ideas come out of um, the body of thought that led to the Declaration of Independence. And I don't want to, you know, it's the 4th of July. I don't want to disparage the Declaration of Independence. What has two thumbs and loves the Declaration of Independence? This guy. And I'm pointing my thumbs at me. But, um, you know, and I think I said this recently on the podcast, or at least I wrote it recently. Um, you know, when the Declaration was written, the really exciting stuff was the conclusion that we were breaking off from England. The beginning was kind of like the throat clearing to sort of, or the, you know, the, the intro music to get people worked up. And as Pauline Mayer and others have noted, it was really just a sort of, uh, hodgepodge. It was a sort of a distillation, not a hodgepodge, um, of declarations of independence that were, that were chock-a-block across the colonies. There was some, like, I think Pauline Mayer found like 90 different declarations of independence from city councils and town councils and state legislatures that tracked with the famous Declaration of Independence because these ideas were just in the air. They were in the, and the water, you know, and in people's hearts. And, and it was Lincoln who made the beginning of the Declaration the important part, not the, um, the end part. And, um, but it's Coolidge who makes this point that like, these ideas, th these ideas don't become less radical in the long scope of human history simply because they get older. And that's one of the problems about human nature is we tend to think that, yes, yeah, some things get old over time, right? I mean, fashion looks weird after a little while. Uh, some notions about the role of women and, you know, sexuality. We can go down a long list of, of norms and customs that don't, age well or that change over time or you know i'm totally open to the idea that they get worse over time but not these these are timeless these are two plus two plus, uh, equals four but as applied to human liberty and and to the human condition and the best way of organizing society and that you know we celebrate the declaration of we, we celebrate the fourth of july as independence from you know England, and that's great, and I like it, good historical holiday, you know, but at the same time, we should also be celebrating the reimagining of the 4th of July, which is really what Lincoln and, um, uh, and Martin Luther King did. And when I say reimagining, I'm not saying they robbed the original declaration of its, of its meaning. It's that they imbued in the original declaration its true significance. And it wasn't that we just sort of cut off relations with uh, an empire and started out on our own. It was also that the reasons why we were doing it were special. The reasons why we felt in the right. And I say we as someone who, I guess my mom's side of the family had people here at the time. But, you know, I mean, I, there were no Goldbergs here back then. But one of the great things about America is the second you become an American, you are as American as anybody else. And it doesn't matter if you speak the English, it doesn't matter 
you know, anything, you know, because of these ideas that are enshrined. Um, and, you know, this whole argument about whether America is a idea or a nation, I just think misses the point entirely. You know, as Coolidge says in the previous paragraph, the one I read, you know, governments do not make ideals, but ideals make government. Um, the, this country's both, right? It was populated by a specific people, but that specific people were particularly animated and committed to a set of ideas. And they set out to create a very special new form of nation. And that's what we celebrate on the 4th of July. And it's something that we should celebrate on the 4th of July. And for the people who think that we're going to get better, that there are, that, that there are better forms of social organization ahead, um, uh, I just simply say you're wrong. I mean, I, I, mean, I mean that really just sort of passionately, that you're, you're just wrong. And, um, and I find more and more when I hear people, you know, the eggheads of the sort of uh, post-conservative right um, who, you know, talk about how, you know, neutral, the classically, classically liberal neutral rules are value-free. Um, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know how you can say that with a straight face. The idea that people are owed due process and have the right to face their accuser that's not value-free neutrality. That is a fundamental concept of fairness, right? That is a fundamental notion that says the government can't just simply decide you are inconvenient and therefore need to be done away with. The government has to make a case. The government has to show you due process and protect your rights. That's, that's not value neutral. That's, that's just drenched in values. The idea that you have the freedom to worship that's not value neutral. That's the very essence of the kind of liberty that you know, America was founded upon. This idea that you have the right to worship God as you see fit. Um, um, you know, it may bother people may confuse that for being value neutral because some people worship badly or not at all. And that makes them cross because they think they should worship a specific way. But unless you want to proselytize or persuade people to worship the way that you want to worship, you certainly shouldn't want to believe that the government should force you to be able to worship in, a, in one way and one way alone. And to believe that the government shouldn't force you to do this, to, to call that value neutral is also nonsense. The right to own your own property, right? The right to free speech, the right to free assembly, um, you know, the, the right not to have soldiers in your home. I mean, none of these things are value neutral. They're, they're just, they're so transparently, obviously accepted norms that sometimes you, you, you start to think they are neutral, you know, because they, they kind of become invisible like dogma. I want to keep them the dogma. I don't, you know, I, I really don't want to get into a huge debate. I don't think it's good for America to get in a huge debate about whether or not government should once again have the ability to wield arbitrary power. Um, I'd rather that question stay closed, but if you want to open it up and you want to say that the nationalists should have, be able to wield power, you know, arbitrarily according to their own whims or that the socialists should arbitrarily or according to their own whims, um, don't tell me that's more modern. Don't tell me that's more advanced. That is going backward. Fukuyama was right. We're at the top of the mountain. This is the end of history. 
in the sense that there's no better way to organize a society than on these basic, fundamental, spinal columns of, of limited government and, and the sovereignty of the individual. And if you want to go left towards socialism or right towards nationalism, you know, those directions don't matter a whole lot to me because when you're at the mount on a mountaintop and you want to move, whether you want to start marching left or start marching right, the real direction you're talking about marching is down back to where we came from. And I don't want to go there. And I think it is the, the height of folly to think that, that these people who cannot distinguish between their, their sort of in the moment, narrow partisan desires and career aspirations and these bedrock principles that have pulled all of humanity at this point, or nearly all of humanity, out of the muck of tribal life and feudal life into the sunny uplands of history. Um, to say that, oh, well, you know, I've got a better idea just shows a profound ingratitude to um, how far along in the advance of human history you were born into and how little appreciation you have for it. So I know I'm getting all snarky, so I'll stop here and just say, have a wonderful 4th of July. Um, there's no shame in having beers and brats and um, enjoying your family because one of the wonderful things about the 4th of July is it made that, it democratized that for hundreds of millions of people to be able to do that. And um, I'm going to do it. So with that, uh, thanks for listening and I will see you next time. Bye.